Ecclesiastes 3 and 4. And let's do the smart thing and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just come to you now as always. We pray, Lord, that you would teach and we would listen to what you have to say. And Lord, just uh, go before us today. I know there's a lot of families out with sickness and other things going on. Just uh, keep them safe, bring them back safe, and just heal them up. And just pray, as always, Lord, you would teach, we would listen to what your Spirit has to say. In your name, amen. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Now, if you weren't with us last week, we started our study in the book of Ecclesiastes. We did chapters 1 and 2 last week. Now, a little bit of intro here, and if you were with me last week, uh, just bear with us. But it's important to make sure these facts are established. Because when you read through Ecclesiastes, it is a very unique book in the Bible. I believe it's probably the most honest book in the Bible. The book of Ecclesiastes is written from the perspective of a man who is going backwards in his walk with the Lord instead of forwards in his walk with the Lord. You're listening to a man whine and complain about life because his eyes are not on God. So as you go through this book, this book is very honest. There's going to be a lot of verses and passages that come out of today that are probably things that we have thought, but we would dare not speak because if we say it, well, then we don't look like a good Christian. And I'm sure a lot of us sat here sometimes in our lives and said, why pray? What's the point? What's the point of all this? Lord, I'm just going to die. Why are we doing this? You know, where's that eternal perspective? And we have those thoughts. God, are you listening? Do you care? Are you doing anything? This world is just going downhill. We've had those thoughts. Well, Ecclesiastes is pen to paper on those thoughts. Like I said last week, is take the time in your life when you were the most down spiritually, you were the most depressed and discouraged spiritually, now imagine for about a half hour all your thoughts were recorded. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the toughest time you've ever experienced in life and what we think. Now, if you have to get up and leave halfway through, make sure you understand the end. Solomon gets this figured out and he understands that the whole perspective is God. But there's this whole continual point, this word vanity is used over 30 times in this book. And that word vanity means meaningless. He keeps saying life is vanity, life is meaningless. And the point of this book is without God, your life is meaningless. That's the truth of it. So with that being said, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time of hate, to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. Now, we've heard those words numerous, numerous times before. And if you're like me, as soon as you hear those words, you think of that song. Um, and no, we're not singing that today, just in case anybody wondered. But I do have to ask this. I asked the first service. Nobody fessed up to this, so I will ask the second service. Does anybody remember when that song actually came out? Not, not hearing it on the radio, but does anybody want to fess up to actually remembering when that song came out? No one? Okay, Glenn. October 1st, 1965. That makes you old. Very, very old. Yes, Glenn, Glenn is very proud of that fact. 46 years ago, that song came out there. Now... And some of you have never taken notes before, but you're writing that down. October 1st, 1965. Point is, what we're trying to say here is there are seasons of life. Now, this is just a very simple point, isn't there? There are seasons of life. We're at the end of winter. Spring is coming. We know this. Problem is, we know this, but do we really accept it? How many of us are sitting here complaining about snow and ice? It's winter in northwest Ohio. What do you think is going to happen? And you know what? You're going to complain in July and August, because I will too, because it will be 90 with humidity. 
There's seasons. We know what these seasons do. The problem is we forget sometimes there's these seasons of life. My second boy, Judah, is so excited about the snow being gone. He's got himself convinced that when all the snow is melted, we're going to put the pool up. He just has himself convinced. He doesn't realize it's not going to be until June that we're going to do that. The Bible makes it clear there's different seasons. In the book of Psalms, it says there's a season of fruit. The book of Psalms says there's also a season of night. It says weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The Bible says in Ezekiel, there's a season of blessing. There's seasons all over the place. And what these first eight verses are trying to tell us is each one of you is in a different spot. Some of you may have come in today, and you have a very, very heavy heart. You're right there in verse 4, a time to weep, a time to mourn. That's the season of life you're in right now. And that season of life is so heavy and so strong, but isn't it interesting that God put a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. Those verses almost seem contradictory to each other, right? It should be, shouldn't be a time to weep, a time to mourn. No, because God is trying to teach you a lesson here. There's a season of weeping, but there's also a season of laughing. There's a season of mourning, but there's also a season of dancing. God says there's seasons. We know this. Problem is when you get stuck in one season of life, you don't see the big picture. Some of us get stuck in that season of mourning and weeping, and it's the woe is me. No one understands. No one cares. No one gets. So we try to come and encourage you and help you out of that season. No, you are so stuck in that season of weeping and mourning. Some of it rightfully so. If you've lost a loved one or a difficult time, the Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. There are seasons of weeping. But sometimes we allow ourselves to be stuck in seasons and don't come out of it. What the writer of Ecclesiastes here is saying is you have to remember there's going to be good days and there's going to be bad days. You've got to keep your eyes on the Savior, not the situation. I remember on the day I got married, my dad gave me advice, and his advice was very simple. He says when it's good, it won't be good forever, and when it's bad, it won't be bad forever. There's a lot of truth to that. You have good days. Right now, you may be in the season of laughing and dancing. Enjoy it. That's a blessing. Now, I'm not trying to be discouraging here, but the truth of the matter is you're not going to laugh and dance forever. Because there's going to be a season of weeping and mourning coming up. You know that. But yet, whatever season you're in, God says, realize that has a purpose and a beginning and an end. Now, we all know it, but the question is, do we accept it? 2 Timothy 4.2 says, be prepared in season and out of season. Because right now, if you're in the season of laughing and dancing, God bless you. That's a good season to be in. You may go into work tomorrow and find out it's mourning and weeping. Right now you're in a season of mourning and weeping, but you know what? You may get that good news in a little bit that turns it into a season of laughing and dancing. The point is, you have ups and downs in life with these different seasons, but the truth of the matter is Christ is stable. He's the foundation of your life, and he neither moves nor shakes. And so therefore, whatever season of life you're in, God is there, and he will get you through it. So don't allow whatever season you're in right now to be a season that dictates your life. You may be in verse 3, the season of breaking down. Everything is falling apart. Your marriage is falling apart, your job's falling apart, your life's falling apart. Look at the next phrase, a time to build up. There'll be a season where things come back together. That is what the world we live in, and God allows that to happen for a reason and a purpose, and we'll get to that in a little bit. So these seasons are here to remind us there's good days and bad days and to give us that eternal perspective. Look at verse 9. What profit has the worker from which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are able to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them to rejoice and to do good in their lives. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It's the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is has already been, and which is to be has already been. 
And God requires an account of what is past. So God says, keep that eternal perspective. You know how hard that is to do? Because the first verse, verse 9, what profit has the worker from which he labors? See, we're supposed to keep this paternal perspective, but the problem is there's always this concept of work hanging over our heads. We try to have an eternal perspective in life, but yet we live in a world where things fall apart and break, and we have to work. Here's this for a depressing thought. I looked this up. The average person will work 100,000 hours in their lifetime. 100,000 hours. Isn't that crazy? So the next time you have a long day at work and you put 10 hours in, congratulations, you just did one ten thousandth of your life. Now, the truth of the matter is, verse 9, if that's your perspective in life, that's depressing. That is depressing. If your life, and we said this last week, if your life is to go home, get up tomorrow, go to work, go to work, come home, eat supper, go to bed and do the same thing on Tuesday, what a depressing, discouraging life. If your whole life is just work, followed by work, followed by more work, and it's this cycle of life, I would be depressed if I was in your shoes too. What a meaningless, pointless existence if all you do is just labor and toil. That is why verses 9 through 17 are here to tell us there is an eternal perspective. Verse 11, he has put eternity in their hearts. I firmly believe people are born with this eternal seekingness where they're trying to find something deeper and bigger than them. They are. Now, some people fill that with other things. But the truth of the matter is that's only going to be filled by the Lord. I heard a great teaching a few years ago where a pastor says, you're born with this infinite hole in your heart. And that infinite hole can only be filled by an infinite God. You try to fill that infinite hole with finite things. Do we think relationships are going to make us happy? No. Marriage isn't going to make us happy. Work's not going to make us happy. We talked about that last week. None of those things bring joy. The only thing that brings joy is your relationship with Christ. And so God says there is this eternal seeking in you. And as you seek for that, verse 11, you have that God-shaped hole. problem is we can't grasp eternity. Look at verse 11. No one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Have you ever stopped and tried to think about eternity? Our whole life is based on time. You have a time where you have to be at work. You have a time when you get off work. You have a time when you eat lunch, a time when you get up, a time when you go to sleep. Everything is based on time. This eternal perspective of verse 11, oh, there is no time. It's eternity. Eternity either in heaven or eternity in hell. It's that you can't grasp it. And God says you have to get that eternal perspective, verse 11, because why? There's a judgment coming, verse 15. That which is has already been, and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. How's this for a scary verse? Matthew 12, 36, God says that we have to give an account of every idle word. But think how many times you just talk without thinking and speaking. We have to give an account of that. See, that's how big God looks at this whole eternal thing. He goes, you are on this earth for a reason. And you remember the two W's. Are, are, we're on this earth for a purpose. We're here to worship the Lord. That's the first one. That's our key thing is we're here to worship God. To him be the glory in everything we do. The other W is we're here to witness. Your whole life comes down to those two things. You're here to worship God and you're here to witness to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anything other than those two things are going to really make you feel empty. God says that's eternal perspective of what you're supposed to have. So he says there's different seasons of life, but the problem is verse 9. I get my mind on this work and all I think about is labor and labor, but yet I know there's an eternal thing and I know this judgment is coming. But what happens in verse 16, he goes back to, Woe is me. Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. See, it does not bother you. God has set this system up, but yet this system is corrupt. Look at verse 16. In the place of judgment, wickedness. In the place of righteousness, 
iniquity. Now, I know you know this, but this world is not fair and this world is not right. You know that and I know that. So if we know that the world is not fair and we know that the world is not right, why do you get frustrated about it? When you go to work tomorrow and you get mistreated, they take advantage of you. Did you really think it was going to be fair and right? When something happens, be it whatever, public place, maybe even in church, where you feel you're pushed down or taken advantage of, did you really think the world is fair and right? It's not. This is a pretty honest verse here in verse 16. Where there's supposed to be honor and truth and judgment, there's wickedness. Where there's supposed to be righteousness, there's iniquity. One of the things I always say in uh, marital counseling is marriage is this two imperfect people trying to have a perfect relationship. It's impossible. You work at a place with imperfect people, with an imperfect boss. You may be that imperfect boss. You go to a church with an imperfect pastor. You're sitting by imperfect people right now. That's what happens, is we're in this place of wickedness and iniquity because we are sinful human beings. So eternity is where everything is made right, verse 17. God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. It's made right in eternity. If you allow yourself to get focused on this world, you will be depressed and you will be discouraged because you will always be disappointed in what this world has to offer. When you go home tonight and you watch the 6 o'clock news, what's it going to be? It's going to be murder. It's going to be rebellion. It's going to be all these things, iniquity of the world. That's what it is. And if you allow yourself to have eyes on the situation and not the Savior, you will be depressed. That's Ecclesiastes. Those Ecclesiastes moments are moments of where my eyes are on the world and not the Lord. Remember, this book is written from the perspective of a man going backwards instead of forwards in his walk with the Lord. This book is written from the perspective of a guy looking at life and not God. That's depressing. That's discouraging. And look what he builds up to, verse 18. I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them as one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. A man has no advantage over animals for all his vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to earth? So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Isn't that just the perspective of the world? What's the point? We're all going to die. You're going to die, I'm going to die. I mean, seriously, what's, how are we any better than the animals? They die, I die, and who knows what happens to us afterwards? I had somebody constantly keep telling me I just become worm food when I die. That was his perspective. What's the point of all this? Is that not just a depressing, discouraging thought? But the honesty of it is, it is an honest thought. I've run into people that have this perspective, verses 18 through 22. And to be honest, I've fallen into this trap. Now, I've never fallen into the trap of thinking I was an animal and just going to die. But you fall into that trap of, God, why? Why pray? Nothing changes. Lord, why, why read and study? I read and study. The marriage isn't any better. Lord, why, why go to church? I go to church, I sit there, I do the worship, I do everything, I come home, my life's still the same. What's the point of all this? See, this is what verses 18 through 22 are. This woe is me, as we said last week, this Eeyore moment. No one cares, no one understands, we all die. How depressing is this? See, this is what happens. When you get your eyes off the Lord and onto the world, you start making these rational, intelligent thoughts. Why go to church? just going to end up in the ground. Why pray? Nothing happens. Nothing changes. This is that honest perspective of this guy. So then he goes one step further. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed. They have no comforter. On the side of the oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. 
Therefore I praise the dead who are already dead, more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Look at his perspective. What difference does it make? Verse 9 of chapter 3, I'm just going to work all day. Verse 16 of chapter 3, there's wickedness, there's iniquity, this life isn't fair, what's the point? Verses 18 through 22, we're just going to die. We're just all going to die. In verses 1 through 3, what's the comforter doing? Nothing. Haven't you ever done that? You flipped on the news and you see something tragic happening in some other country and you sit there and you say, how can a God of love allow that? That little kid did nothing wrong and there's that little baby suffering for what reason? Lord, how could you allow that, that, that earthquake to happen? How could you allow that accident to happen? How could you allow that disease and destruction? How could you allow that little kid to get leukemia? What type of God allows this type of thing? And what you have is verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. There's no comforter. There, there's, there's nothing here except depression and tears and disappointment. And so verse 2, I wish I never would have been born. I wish I was dead. Now, we don't like to verbalize those thoughts. But I bet you a lot of us here today have had those thoughts at least one time or another. Of, Lord, this isn't worth it. Why am I here? I don't want to be here anymore. I wish I never would have been born, like we said last week. You know, that it's a wonderful life moment. I wish I never would have been born. So what's the answer to verses 1 through 3? Because there's some truth there. There's a lot of tears in this world. There's a lot of oppression in this world. There's a lot of times where I sit there and think, yeah, is this worth it? Turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians 1. He's asking about the comforter. Well, 2 Corinthians 1 tells us about the comforter. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to go ahead and start it here in uh, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, verse 4. God does not repeat himself for no reason. He doesn't have a problem with words. So when he decides in verse 4 to stress this word comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which we are, ourselves are comforted by God. So he decided four times in verse 4 to mention comfort. Now why would he do that? He's trying to stress to you a point. He's the God of comfort. So when Ecclesiastes 4 has this moment of who is there to help us through this oppression and this tears, this world is worthless and meaningless, God says, I'm here. I'm the God of comfort. He said in Hebrews 13:5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, the question comes up of do you believe that? Because this is what happens. You're going to be faced with the difficult, difficulty in life. There's no doubt about that. We just went over that. You're going to have a season of mourning and weeping and, and trouble and trials and tribulation. You're going to. Now, when that season of life hits you, what are you going to do? Are you going to go live in Ecclesiastes 4 with the tears of oppression and there's no comforter and what's the point of all this? I just wish I was an animal and dead and never been born. Fine. You want depression and discouragement to get the best of you? You can allow it to get the best of you. Or you can go to 2 Corinthians 1 and say, God, you're my comforter during this time because I don't get what's going on. I need you. See, here's the thing. When I used to run into people that had those Ecclesiastes moments of woe is me, I always tried to pull them out of the pit. And I realized, number one, I can't pull anybody out of the pit. Only God can. And number two, just to be quite honest, some people don't want to be pulled out of the pit. I don't understand it. I don't get it. Some people like living in the book of Ecclesiastes. They like the woe is me. 
They like the depression. They like the discouragement. They like the whole world is falling apart and look at me how horrible my life is. I wish I never would have been born. If that's where you want to live, of the 66 books in the Bible, you want to live in Ecclesiastes, I can't get you out of that. But I'm telling you right now, there is an alternative, and that alternative is 2 Corinthians 1. There's a God of comfort that cares. Well, if he cares, why does he allow it to happen? Verse 5, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Do you realize what verse 5 is saying? He goes, the more you suffer, the more comfort I give you. That's a fair exchange. If more things are happening in your life that are difficult, and remember those words, they're trials, they're tribulations, they're anguish. God says the more things that happen in your life like that, the more comfort I'll give you. Verse 6, now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. See what he says in verse 6, he goes, if you're afflicted, he goes, I'm going to use that later on. Whatever season of life you're going through, I'm going to use later on because you will then be able to go to someone who's going through that same problem and say, this is the comfort I receive from the Lord, and this is how God got me through it. See, now, we either believe that or we don't. So when those trials and tribulations of life hit and you say, Lord, why? He says, I'm the God of comfort. I'll get you through it. Verse 6, when you're afflicted, those afflictions will be used later on to comfort somebody else. Now, sitting here today, you either believe that or you don't. If you decide to go back to Ecclesiastes 4 and say, woe is me, that's your choice. But the truth of the matter is God says, I will use this and get you through it. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, do we believe that or not? The writer of Ecclesiastes at that time, I don't know if he believed it. There's been times in my life where I don't know if I believed it. I remember not too long ago I had a situation that got me really frustrated, really frustrated. I was really worked up. And... And I remember I was driving someplace for a hospital visit out here at church, and I was just really worked up about something. And, and Dawn called and couldn't get through to me and, and left a message. And the message she left was, was biblical, it was encouraging, it was right on, it was perfect. I just didn't want to hear it at the time. But she was right. I hate saying that, but she was right. And there's been times, too, where I know I'm talking to somebody, and it's not because I have all the answers because I'm not that smart, but I know what I'm saying is right. They just don't want to hear it. And so just like today... You can sit here, and it's, it is totally your choice. Free will. You can either live in Ecclesiastes, or you can live in 2 Corinthians 1. It is your choice. If you choose to live in Ecclesiastes, I'm telling you right now, life is depressing, it's discouraging, and it's meaningless without God. That's what Ecclesiastes is trying to tell you. And if you need to keep learning that lesson, then I guess you have to stay there for a while. I don't know why you'd want to. God will not leave you nor forsake you. He will be with you. He will get you through it. We either believe it or we don't. So let's see what else he says. Now jump back to Ecclesiastes 4. Verse 4 of Ecclesiastes 4. Again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This is also vanity and grasping for the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full, together with toil, grasping for the wind. Then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There's one alone without companion. He's neither son nor brother, yet there's no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asked, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. See, here's the problem. When we have this mindset of no one cares, no one understands, where is God? It becomes a very lonely selfishness, a very lonely selfish mindset. Verse 4, look at those words. Toil right there. And this grasping. And jump ahead, if you will, to once again in verse 6. Toil and grasping. I just work and work and work for what? With no eternal perspective 
What a meaningless existence. What a meaningless existence. See, the problem is some of us work and work, though, because verse 6, we're grasping with both hands. Did you catch that in verse 6? See, there's some truth here in verse 6, because instead of trying to get stuff with both hands, better a handful with quietness. See, sometimes it's better just to have the one handful with quietness than it is to try to get everything perfect the way you want. I know some people that will only be satisfied when everything is perfect. Perfect marriage, with the perfect house, with the perfect car, with the perfect job, with the perfect kids. That's never happened yet. I know some people that will only be happy when everything is perfect physically. Perfect knee, the perfect back, the perfect neck, fill in the blank. See, verse 6, better a handful with quietness. Some days you may just have to accept the fact, hey, my back feels better. My knee's killing me, but thank the Lord my back feels better. You may have to accept the fact that, hey, God's blessings on our marriage, our car may be falling apart, our house may be falling apart, but we're united in Christ. See, better a handful with quietness. If you constantly are trying to get everything, I's dotted, T's crossed, it's never going to work. We're in a season of life right now at the Irvin household, but there's just sickness left and right, constantly. We're just this end of winter going into spring type thing with the boys, and it just constantly feels like there's a sick kid here and there. I've reached a point of two out of four are healthy, I'm happy. The other two that are sick, tough luck, because two out of four, that's not bad. I would like three out of four, but I'll take two out of four right now. Because there's just this time where I'll take verse 6, a handful of quietness. Sometimes a handful of quietness is better than the rest of verse 6, grasping and toiling for the wind. And I know people like this, where it's like you talk to them, it's like, wow, hey, that job situation worked out. How great is that? Yeah, the job situation worked out, but now my car's broke. Well, your, your job's good. Thank the Lord for that. Or you know what? Well, the job situation's horrible. Yeah, but look at you. You're walking around healthy. Yeah, but who cares? about? Come on. If that's the mindset you have, no one can change that. No one can change that. If you want to constantly look for the negative and the bad and the depression and the discouragement, once again, you can live in Ecclesiastes all you want. Why would you want to do that? There's a God of comfort that cares and loves you. Okay, if he's there, why do I, verse 8, feel so alone? There is one alone without companion. Why am I doing this? There's such an emptiness and a loneliness. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Jump ahead to the end, then we'll backtrack here. Verse 12, I think it's a verse I've used in every marriage I've done. Threefold cord is not quickly broken, and I always say that threefold cord represents the bride, the groom, and God united together. In fact, I did a marriage uh, a few years ago where they actually had a um, rope that was brought up and presented to the couple to show that unity of literally being united, tied together. What a beautiful symbolism that was of being united and tied together. That's what verse 12 is trying to tell you here, is if you're in, in married, it's you, your spouse, and the Lord. That's the only way marriage is going to work. I say at every wedding I do, uh, I quote the verse in Corinthians 3.11, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ. Christ is the only foundation of your life. Christ is the only foundation of your marriage. There's nothing you can do about that. Problem is with some marriages, you may want to be united and tied together. Your spouse may be trying to untie the knot. That's a difficult place to be in. And you may even be seeing here saying, Okay, I don't even have anybody. Verse 9, two are better than one. Yeah, I'd really like to have somebody. Verse 10, I want somebody to help me lift me up. Verse 11, I want somebody to help keep me warm. Well, you have that person. Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Oh, okay, yeah, okay, technically you're right, but that doesn't count. My goodness, haven't you ever done that? I, I know people, it's like, you know, I really wish I had someone to talk to. 
Talk to the Lord. I mean, somebody like real. <laughs> okay, well, what's... <laughs> God's a puppet? I don't know. You mean, he, he's real. No, I mean, I want somebody face-to-face, somebody that can interact and respond. I, I, God responds. I mean, the Bible says that. I mean, I know what they're saying, because I've been in that position, too, where sometimes you just want that person to sit across from you and, and just interact. I understand that. But... At 3 o'clock in the morning when you can't sleep because worry, fear, and anxiety have the best of you, that's where you're so appreciative of Christ. You know, Isaiah says he's the God that neither sleeps nor slumbers. Aren't you thankful about that? But you may have somebody, you know, I could call them at any time during the day. Okay, yeah, you probably could call them any time during the day. But wouldn't you rather talk to the Lord? He will never leave you nor forsake you. I know I'm being repetitious on that point, but isn't that the key point? He will never leave you. So if you feel like I'm all alone, no one's with me, you have God. You have the Lord that is with you to help lift you up, to encourage you, to be that God of comfort. See, once again, in Ecclesiastes 4, if you want to live in Ecclesiastes 4, you can. No one cares. I'm all alone. No one's there to help me. What's the point? And God just keeps tapping on your shoulder saying, I'm here. Aren't I good enough? The God of comfort. Look at Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, you can boldly go to the throne of grace. You get to talk to God anytime you want during prayer. What a beautiful gift that is. He's there for you to help you get you through it. Let's finish this up. Verse 13. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who would be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. See, this is the, what's the point? Waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah, my life is good right now, but something bad's going to happen. Because what you have here is verse 13. You have this poor, wise youth comes out of prison and becomes king. King to the point of where his kingdom is so many people, they can't even tell. But verse 16, he's going to die. Someone's going to come after him. Yeah, that's true. Now, once again, what are you going to focus on? Yeah, I mean, let's just be honest with you. You're going to die, I'm going to die too. I remember one time I had a junior high teacher that told us, he says, do you not realize that every day you're one day closer to death? What a depressed junior high teacher, my goodness. Yeah, I won't go there. But the point is, that's the advice he gave us as 12 and 13-year-olds. And the point is, there's a lot of truth to that. Now, I'm not trying to depress you and discourage you because there's joy in the Lord. But if you focus on these verses 13 through 16, okay, yeah, so big deal, this great story, the kid comes out of prison, he becomes king, rules over everybody, then he dies. Yeah, he does. That's the seasons of life we live in. But the point of this is what? I think the key word in verse 13 is wise. See, why is he wise? See, if this was in Proverbs, we would have stopped halfway through verse 16. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. See, we would stop right there. And Proverbs. And we would talk about wisdom and the importance of wisdom. The problem is Ecclesiastes is honest. He throws in the last thing. He's going to die. So, look at the wisdom part of this. Remember, when we did our study in Proverbs, we said the purpose of Proverbs is what? Wisdom. Get wisdom before you need it because you will know you need it. You need wisdom to make good godly choices, to make the right decisions in life. You need that wisdom. God-given wisdom. Well, our first study in Ecclesiastes last week, Solomon decided he was going to figure out life by wisdom. The wisest man that ever lived. And so he decided, I'm going to live my life in wisdom, the wisdom of the world, to figure everything out. And what did he come to the conclusion of last week? Wisdom is meaningless and vanity without God. 
What's the point of having all the wisdom in the world if you don't understand the Lord? It's meaningless, vanity, pointless. So what is wisdom? I want to repeat the points that we said last week. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. The first one's in Colossians 2. Colossians 2, verses 2 through 3. Colossians 2, 2 through 3. The first one tells us that wisdom is found in Jesus Christ, that he's wisdom. And the next one is in Colossians 3, verse 16. Colossians 3, verse 16 says that wisdom is the word, the word of God. So it's like we said last week. If you want wisdom, go to God and go to the word. Those are the two things that are going to give you wisdom. When you turn to the world for help and wisdom, you will be disappointed, you will be discouraged, and you will be left feeling empty. When you go to the Lord, you will have wisdom of God, you have the wisdom of the Word. When somebody comes to me and asks me what I think, the best thing I can do is give them scriptures. Because my opinions don't matter. My opinions will be meaningless vapor. But when you give them God's Word, God's Word is the wisdom and the guidance that will get you through it. What Ecclesiastes 3 and 4 is trying to tell us is there are seasons of life. There are seasons of life that have ups and downs. Now stop with that point right there, because now you're at that proverbial fork in the road. What one are you going to go with? You can go with the mindset of there are seasons of life and ups and downs. I'm always the one in the down. What's the point of living? What's the point of all this work? There's nothing good in this world. I wish I was just dead. Okay, now you've got Ecclesiastes 3 and 4 figured out. Or you can go to the other points. Hebrews 13:5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. 2 Corinthians 1, there's a God of comfort that gets us through these difficult times. In Colossians 2 and Colossians 3, there's wisdom in the Lord that gets you through this. And as he gets you through this, you can learn from these things to pass this wisdom on to someone else. The reason Ecclesiastes is in the Bible is so you and I don't have to live Ecclesiastes. We can learn from this person's life to say, what's the point of the pleasure and the wisdom and all this stuff when it really gets us nowhere? The point is God and God alone. Let's do this, if you will. Flip to Ecclesiastes 12. Let's just remind ourselves of how this finishes up. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's the conclusion. It's all the Lord. See, he comes to that conclusion. But he has 12 chapters of a little bit of whining and complaining. But you and I do the same thing in our lives too. But here's the point. Can we learn from this book to say, let's skip the 12 chapters of whining and complaining and get to the end. God is you and you alone, and I pray, Lord, you help us through it. That's what we need to do. If you want to come forward here for the final song. As we're getting ready for the final song, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Fathers, we just come to you now. Lord, there are Ecclesiastes moments. There's times of weeping and mourning Lord, for those that are going through a difficult time, encourage them, uplift them, Lord, which I know that you will. Lord, for those that are in the times of laughing and dancing, thank you for the blessing that you've given. And Lord, I just want to pray that you would be with them in all ways too. Lord, we are so thankful for what you've done. We're thankful for what you're doing. And help us, Lord, to keep that perspective of you and you alone, Lord. You will never leave us. You'll never forsake us. You are the God of comfort in all ways. And Lord, as we struggle with these ups and downs in life, be our sure foundation. And whatever season of life we're in right now, Lord, help us through this. We lift this up in your name, in the name of Jesus. Um, what we're going to do here is they're uh, doing the final song. Is